What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. This week, we bring together two of the world's most prominent philosophers, Kwame Anthony Appiah and John Gray, to discuss mistaken identities, the conflict over culture, class, gender and nation. Hannah Kay is the producer of this event and joins me now. Hannah, tell us why we're doing this event. Well, Farah, when I heard Kwame Anthony Appiah's Wreath Lectures on Mistaken Identities in 2016, I thought they were really interesting. So when I heard that he was expanding the lectures into a book called The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity, I was very keen to get him for Intelligence Squared. And Appiah isn't very often in England as he's a professor at NYU. So I was delighted when we secured him. And then we had to think who we might pair him with. We decided that John Gray was the perfect interlocutor. He's an emeritus professor at the LSE with a big following. And he certainly has ideas about identity on which he doesn't entirely see eye to eye with Appiah. And then um, to uh, steer the conversation between them, we brought in Rita Lashar from the BBC. Well, now let's go straight to the event where we explore why identities unite us, but also divide us. Welcome, everybody, to Intelligence Squared. Well, tonight we have two of the world's most prominent thinkers to debate the place of the elements that we equate with identity in a rapidly changing world. Just briefly, by way of introduction, I want to ask you both about your own sense of identity. I've described what you do, but who are you? What is your identity, Anthony? I'm an Anglo-Ghanaian-American. That's simple. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm an ex-Anglican. Uh, I'm gay. And I'm a philosopher. There's quite a few categories there. <laughs> John. I was born in a working-class community in the northeast of England. I became an academic for about 40 years. And now I'm a, now I'm a writer. Oh, there you go. That's, we, you've defined yourselves, which is interesting. And I think some of that will come back up, I hope, in the course of this conversation. I want to talk about the book, Anthony, first of all, and there will be plenty of time for all of you to ask questions, so don't worry. The book's subtitled Rethinking Identity, but it is almost a sort of a history of how we've arrived at the sort of categories in which we place identities now, which, in in a sense, both of you referred to. So you talk about creed, country, colour, class and culture in five chapters. At the very beginning of the book, you define what you see as the problem, how we use identity to bind us together, something you call essentialism. Explain what that's about. So this is not actually the philosopher's use of the word essentialism, it's the psychologist's use of the word essentialism. And it means um, this tendency we all have, and it's a tendency that begins in childhood, when you are introduced to a kind of person to assume that there's some deep inner thing that all the people of that kind have in common that explains, as it were, why they are uh, women or Protestants or whatever the category is you're being introduced to. And you can do this with children with artificial categories. You can, you can invent a word. The, the psychologist um, uh, did an experiment with some kids where they invented the word zarpy. And they said to some kids, they just showed kids pictures of human beings uh, people of all kinds of colours, men and women, um, you know, uh, plump and uh, skinny, 
and they said about them, um, this Zarpy is doing this and that Zarpy is doing that. And then they said things like Zarpy's like television or Zarpy's like chewing gum. And a day later, they showed the kids to whom they'd spoken like that a picture of one person. They said, this Zarpy is, and I forget what it was, it was, you know, um, uh, playing with an insect or something. And the kids' response was, oh, Zarpy's play with insects. They'd already decided that if, if one Zarpy did something, you know, they all would. And I think that sense of treating people who are in any of these identity categories as if there's some deep thing that they all have in common, which means they're all going to be the same, um, is, is a tendency of our thought, which it's, it's very natural to us, but I think it's to be resisted. But does that negate the idea of identity altogether? You described yourself as an ex-Anglican, a gay man. Those things do all apply to you. Is there essentialism at the core of them? Well, I think that if you ask, uh, what, what do you know about me when you know that I'm a man? Something. But think about the range of men there are in the world. There are uh, F2M men. There are... Uh, there are men who are aggressive, there are men who are timid, there are men who are tall, there are men who are short, there are men who are Protestant, there are men who are Sunni, there are men who are Shia. I mean, they're all men, uh, and they have something in common in virtue of which we call them men. But it, uh, in many contexts, it doesn't matter very much. There are many contexts in which there are more important things about you than your gender, and so on. So I think um, uh, it's a kind of starting point. It can be useful as a starting point. And I think one of the reasons we need these starting points is because unlike the vast uh, bulk of our ancestors temporarily in the, in the human past, we humans today interact regularly with thousands upon thousands of people. We have, whereas a typical human uh, 10,000 years ago probably knew 100 people in the whole of their lifetime, 120 people in the whole of their lifetime. So it, they didn't need all the labels. They, they knew that, that was Joe and that was Mary. Um, we are constantly interacting with people that we haven't seen before, may not see again. We need some guideposts, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why identities are so important in modernity. The guiding posts, though, suggest that other people confer identity upon us. How do you negotiate that? Well, I think in all identities, there's a, there's a, a negotiation, as you said, between uh, what the identity means for the bearers and what it means for everybody else. And a lot of what we call identity politics, uh, one kind of identity politics, is about negotiate that, precisely that negotiation. Trans people have decided that the gender system is not working for them. They're negotiating with the rest of us to try and get it, sh the system shifted so that they feel more comfortable in that system. Um, they can't do it simply by declaring individually, here's what my gender means to me. You don't think that's possible? You can't just decide your identity? No, I don't think you can because it's, because it's a social thing. It belongs to... It'd be like, you know, um, Lewis Carroll's Humpty Dumpty just declaring what words mean. Words belong to all of us. Uh, we have to negotiate them. Uh, so I don't think anybody, as it were, is in charge of what any of these identities mean. There are reasonable ethical principles that suggest, for example, that if an identity is being used to oppress and harm somebody, there's a reason to see if we can adjust it, because you shouldn't oppress and harm people on the basis of anything, least of all identity. But, um, but if that's so, it's still going to have to be a question between all of us how we're going to... Um, readjust how we're going to make it work. So your word negotiation strikes me as exactly the right word. And because uh, in negotiation um, who has the power makes a lot of difference, there's often an enormous responsibility on those of the dominant identity uh, to, uh, to be attentive to what the identity system is doing to the less powerful because while nobody can fix the meanings of identity on their own, powerful people in this, as in all things, have more influence than less powerful people. I alluded to the idea that you talk about the historical context of these labels. Perhaps that's the easiest place to discuss that is in the context of racism and how we perceive mm. race. And you draw a line back. I'll, I'll let you describe it. But how we've arrived, perhaps, at our modern notions of race. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it, it's really important that... 
to, to, to understand that while people have been classifying people in all kinds of ways on the basis of appearance for a very long time, uh, you know, that they're doing that in the, in, the, in the Iliad and in Genesis and Exodus, um, uh, there's something new that comes into the world. And I think there are sort of two stages. First, in the 18th century, um, uh, there's in, in the sort of Atlantic world, in the world of slavery, frankly, uh, color comes to be a very central thing and the world is divided into sort of black and white and yellow. And, um, and that process is connected with the rise of uh, slavery in what was, after all, a self-consciously Christian society, which had to explain to itself why it was okay to treat people in the way that it became the very terrible way, in which it very quickly became clear to everybody slaves are being treated in the Middle Passage. So that's one stage. Uh, at the beginning of the 18th century, you could be like somebody I write about in the book, Anton Wilhelm Amu, a philosopher like us, who started out in Ghana, like me, and ended up as a professor of philosophy in Germany, having been educated by some German princes, uh, of whom he was the godson. Um, by the end of the 18th century, that's not going to happen. And um, so that's one thing. Because in the 19th century, I think the key move is the rise of biology and the idea that this, this important difference, the, back to the essentialism, the, the essential thing was, was the body, was, was this inherited biological stuff. And so through the 19th century, the word biology is actually coined in 1800. So through the 19th century, the idea of a biological uh, explanation for these differences, a biological essence develops. And that, of course, uh, one of the things about essentialism is that it means that your, your identity is now kind of fixed, determinate, uh, inescapable, and generalizable about so you, you, you find one, you, you find that, you know, you find 20 people of a certain race that, I don't know, um, can't, can't do good mathematics. You assume none, none of them can, and so on. Um, now, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, there's a huge challenge to the biological view and the, the rise of a sort of anthropological view of race, which focuses much more on culture and less on biology. But that biological picture, I think, is still deeply embedded in the ordinary thinking of people, not just in Europe and North America, but around the world, because these ideas have traveled. The idea that really there is some physical thing that explains why the, the Chinese race, the yellow race, uh, why they're like that. And, and furthermore, we can generalize about them. They're, they're smarter than the Africans. Um, maybe they're sneakier, uh, and so on. Um, and, those, and the idea that that's embedded in their bodies, so there's not, it's sort of inescapable, they, they, they can't be changed, I think is, is implicit in a lot of the ways we talk about these things, even if officially, in our official discourse, we have rejected a lot of these ideas. Um, we live always, I think, uh, with sort of theories that have disappeared from, uh, from the official realm, percolated into public thought, and, and we need to, I think, un undo them. Um, and so that's my story about, about race. And I think that, uh, as I say, we're still living with that 19th century notion, and we're also living with the fact that the notion was put in place in the first place in the context of slavery and empire, in the context of racial, what came to be a form of racial domination. John, I've been like the worst dinner party guest. I've turned my back on you. I'm turning <laughs> back. Um, this all sounds sort of rather wonderful. We can negotiate our identities. There are multi, a multiplicity of identities. There are historical reasons for why we've arrived at some of the reflexive identities that perhaps we have. And yet we're having this conversation within a time when this is a, a tumultuous subject, a tumultuous idea, is it as straightforward as, as perhaps we've described it until now to talk about identity and to talk about identity as a social fact? Well, I agree with an enormous amount of what Anthony has said, and I would underscore what he said about the 18th and 19th centuries and perhaps take it further than he would when I would say that 18th century enlightenment thought was not just accidentally uh, racist. Um, uh, three of the great canonical thinkers of the European Enlightenment, Kant, Voltaire, and uh, David Hume, all wrote in uh, ways that would now be recognized as racist about Africans and others. 
And this wasn't just a case of their voicing the prejudices of their time. First of all, they were supposed to be the leading intellects of the age, so uh, one would expect slightly better of them. But it also had an essential role in their project, which was to show not only that European civilization, as it then was, was the best civilization, but they thought, uh, especially Voltaire, but I think also the other two, that it was the civilization which would and should replace all others. That's a crucial point. In other words, all the other civilizations that had hitherto existed or existed then, Chinese, Indian, Persian, uh, the civilizations of North and South America before the colonialism and so on, they would all disappear and be replaced by a universal civilization which would be the European civilization of their day uh, uh, spread uh, all over the world. And then in the 19th century, um, that acquired, that view acquired a biological veneer in Germany and in Britain and in many other countries when um, pseudo-Darwinian or neo-Darwinian theories were developed according to which races were natural categories, like species or even more fixed than species were. So I agree with all that. Where our emphasis may differ is that I think it's a mistake to think of um, identity as mainly a matter of self-consciousness. Now, of course, I accept that, as Anthony said, the way babies, human infants, uh, process their experience of other people has this essentialist uh, tendency. But I ask the question, why is identity politics um, as central as it is today? I mean, the truth that we, human babies, human infants, have these properties, I think it is a truth, was true it's been true as long as there were human babies, and it was true in all different cultures and all different human settlements. Still true now. Why is it now that we have these contestations over identity at the centre of politics, as I think we would both agree uh, they are at the present time? And there I would emphasise one or two sort of facts about identity. If we think of it not only as a form of self-consciousness or as a form of perception of others which, so to speak, naturally arises from uh, uh, the capacities of humans as a particular type of animal when they're infants. And one of the key facts about identity is that it's as often, or in the 20th century, more often ascribed or projected onto other people than asserted by them as a matter of their self-consciousness. I mean, if you think of the history of the 20th century, and indeed of our century, so far as it's unfolded now, you find very many cases in which... Um, uh, an identity is, so to speak, um, ascribed to another group or uh, another uh, human settlement of some kind, another human society, uh, um, by uh, a powerful actor, and then actions are taken on the basis of that. And in general, I think I can risk the following generalization. Being on the wrong side of an ascription or projection of identity is very rarely auspicious. <laughs> It's quite commonly, in fact, has lethal impact. <laughs> it's quite commonly a threat to your life or your freedom. And in the 20th century, so if you were, if you were a Muslim in the uh, post-Yugoslav wars in Bosnia or a, a Jew in uh, uh, Vienna at particular times of history, if, 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 if someone said, you are a Jew, you are a Muslim, and you replied, yes, I'm a Jew and I'm a Muslim, but I'm also a European, or I'm, that wouldn't cut much ice. You'd be killed anyway. Um, so, a key feature where my view might differ somewhat from Antony's is that I think um, identity politics is much more a set of power relations than it is a, a, a group of cognitive distortions. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very often associated not with negotiation, not, but with um, the sheer exercise of power, including, including lethal force. And that means, I think, that we have to then ask, what is it in the real world? I'm almost tempted to say the material world. What is it in the real world of the economy and the real world of, of society uh, that has kindled this uh, flame of uh, identity politics in countries as different as Sweden, uh, um, uh, Germany, uh, America, uh, Britain, uh, uh, many parts of the Far East, parts of Africa, uh, and so on. What is it in this world that we share 
uh, in some sort of way, even though we contest it all and fight about it and fight each other about it all the time. What is it? And so that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, so, so to speak, material explanations well, for the, the, uh, uh, the, the relatively sudden, I would say, although it has a long historical antecedents, explosion of identity politics. So if we talk about power structures, is, is this a moment in which people have found their voice? Is that why we're talking about it? Whether it's technology, whether it's better education, there are more people waiting to be heard. Well, I think John's right about the importance of power, but I think it's wrong to ignore the fact that in these processes where someone ascribes an identity to a group of people in order to oppress them or, or imperialize them or to use them as scapegoats for some political purpose, um, that um, the, the standard response of that, to that, I think, is this process of the development of a shared consciousness among the oppressed of themselves, perhaps for the first time, as belonging together. Remember, um, Africans didn't know they were Africans in uh, 1800, 1900. They were just people. They were just people. You asked asked Bantu speakers who they were, they said they were Bantu. That just means people. Bantu is the Bantu word for for people. uh, and and they, they didn't know that they, they were on a continent in which there were a lot of other black people and so on. So, but now they do. Now the black people of Africa think of themselves as black people. That's the result of an experience of, uh, connected with imperialism and, and, and empire and, and colonization and so on. But it's now a real thing. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a thing that can be positively mobilized in the consciousnesses of African people, uh, as it was uh, by people like my father, who, who was an anti-colonial activist, who was one of the generation that took the Gold Coast back from Britain and made it Ghana. They did that in the name, in that case, of a, an identity that had been clearly imposed upon them, namely citizens of the Gold Coast. The Gold Coast is a hodgepodge of people from uh, many languages, many religious traditions, many, uh, uh, many ecologies, because it's quite a diverse ge- geographically. Um, but in 1957, they were thrown together, and now it means something to them, and that, that can be mobilized in the world uh, to do work. So I don't think, I think the, the sort of, the interiorization of these things, it may start with, with some negative stigmatization, but think of the power that has been generated in the world, for example, by thinking of yourself not as a, a despised queer, but as a gay person, as someone who has an affirmative sense of gay identity in response to uh, homophobic oppression. That's a really good example where, if you like, people bunching together have changed the perception of their identity, at least in Europe and in parts of America, if not all over the world. But isn't the danger of what we're seeing now that you have fragmentation to such a degree that nobody understands each other. You've lost any kind of overarching structure. Isn't that what's, le- that what's leading to the conflict that we see around us now? So, one of the most... I just gave the example of Ghana and Ghanaian mm. nationalism. One of the most powerful, potentially powerful forms of affirmative identity is nationalism. We have, we have a word for good nationalism. It's patriotism. And uh, remember, every one of these large groups is a community of strangers. We do not know each other. The British do not know each other. The Americans do not know each other. The Ghanaians do not know each other. Uh, They know just a few uh, Ghanaians, uh, Americans, Brits. Um, So something has to grab you and make you feel it's worth my time and energy and money to pay my taxes so that other people, other Brits, can have pensions, a healthcare system, and so on. I'm not just doing this for me. If you're just doing this for me, it's going to collapse. And I think that's a very powerful form of that. So you talked about the, the, the dangers of division. Of course, some of these toxic forms of identity politics are precisely dividing nations. They're not just dividing nations from each other. They're dividing nations. But the response to that, I think, has to be better identity politics. It has to be picking the right identities for the right purposes and using them in the right way, in a positive way, and resisting the temptations of bad Identity politics. John, can modern identity politics allow for that? Isn't patriotism and nationalism, if you like, on the other side? If anything, it's, it's spawned a kind of, 
if you've got identity politics that many people would argue began on the left, or you've spawned identity politics on the right, which has taken nationalism in its purest sense for itself. Well, identity politics um, has been around for a long time. I mean, uh, think of the distinctions embodied in ancient Greek between Greeks and the rest. Barbarians. <laughs> People who spoke in a different way and who lived in a different way and who were by implication inferior to Greeks. True, it was mostly male Greeks. In Aristotle, it's male Greeks over 40 who own substantial property. It's a relatively limited part of the human species at that time. But still, uh, that, it, it goes back a long way. And I don't think um, identity politics can be ascribed as a particular failure of the left now. That's much too short a, in the 20th century and uh, before it was often on the right. Um, and I also agree with what Anthony was saying about um, nations and nationalism. There's a tendency, particularly in certain types of liberal thought, liberal thinking, to represent nations and nationalism as forms of tribalism. Mm. I think this is exactly wrong. Uh, historically speaking, uh, nations have been ways in which different mixed human populations come together as, if you like, paradoxically, communities of strangers to set up a, uh, a society which they can all live. But, and it's a very big but, the demand for self-government, for national self-government, it's very hard in practice, and it proved very hard in practice, for that to be purely civic. It's nearly always had a tendency to exclude others. Which, in a sense, leads me on to the idea of why some identities are more valuable than others. Again, a source of enormous conflict. Is that something that's inevitable, unchangeable? Well, I mean, you could mean more valuable... As, uh, I might say power. more valuable to whom yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Is, is the question. Uh, look, I mean, I, I think that a great deal of what's required of political leadership in our time, and in a lot of this, and this is profoundly absent in lots of places, is a sense of the recognition of the profound dangers associated with the mobilization of this uh, tendency of our natures to uh, be very easily brought together as an us by, by using some them to do the work of binding us and, by, and joining us together uh, not in an affirmative and positive spirit of, of uh, mutual support, but not, well, not only with that, but also with a negativity. And the thing about that, the thing about that kind of, as it were, ethnic entrepreneurship, which goes on in many, many societies, is that it works. And like anything that works in politics, it's very tempting for politicians to use it. So I think one of the great things we, we need to do, and when I say we here, I mean those of us who care about the fate of the planet, those of us who are thoughtful and care about the fate of the planet, is to, is to think about ways to undermine the people who want to go that way. And I'll give you an example that might have worked in the lead-up to the Rwandan genocide, where ethnic entrepreneurs were using Tutsi demonization, um, we could have turned off the radio. I mean, we had the technical capacity to stop those radio stations. But who radio... is the we? Who would well, have been the we? we is the, I mean, it could have been done through a six, uh, security council could have authorized it. It was difficult for legal reasons because there are good legal reasons for not allowing people to turn off other people's radio. Uh, but if the alternative is genocide, I'm not sure that those other reasons should have been regarded. And in fact, this was suggested by some people and the lawyers said no because we have signed a treaty that says we won't do that. Well, maybe we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't have a treaty that says we shouldn't do that. Maybe there are circumstances in which uh, the institutions of the international community ought to be able to mobilize against some forms of mobilization of these things. So I think it's a very tempting instrument of politics uh, because it works. And the, and the trick, the, the challenge is for those of us who know that down that road lies genocide and the negative kind of ethnic cleansing, not... not people happily they're sort of moving out and the Slovenians discovering that they can all be Slovenians for the first time, uh, which, 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 you know, good for them. Um, but, uh, but, but the negative side of it, which I think we've seen so much of, um, especially between the, between the wars and then there was a whole bunch of it again after the Second World War. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're obviously enjoying it. So please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes so that more people can find out about the Intelligence Squared podcast.
And now back to the show. But if you're going to allow embedded identities to become part of a nation, part of a discourse, doesn't, in order to keep a, a peaceful coexistence in the, in the way that you're describing, John, doesn't there need to be economic stability as well? Yes. I think that's a very important point. If you ask me at the moment, what was the biggest uh, potential trigger of large-scale identity conflict in the world or in Europe or perhaps even in America, I wouldn't mention, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick uh, false theories or uh, um, cognitive biases in the human animal. I would pick the real possibility of another major dislocation of capitalism. In other words, another, an, an, another credit crisis or dislocation of the type of capitalism we've, globalized capitalism we've developed today, which is as big or bigger than the one we had 10 years ago. Because since the one we had 10 years ago, we've had the near disappearance in continental Europe of the centre-left, at least as a deciding force in politics. And practically all, not only Italy, to begin with it was thought to be only a feature of undeveloped post-communist countries. I remember when I used to talk about that in the 90s and then later on people would say, uh, well, that's just Eastern Europe. I thought that was patronising and ridiculous. And now it's Italy and Sweden uh, and many other... And also, let's not forget, Germany, uh, uh, in which parties with direct links, many of them with Nazism and fascism, have returned to the... Uh, political stage and even returned in government as in Italy uh, or uh, as pivotal factors in politics which can affect the shape and complexion of governments. They return. So what happened? Well what happened was the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 which I think left a profound apart from anything else that had happened I mean before that ever happened there were long periods in which worse off people in society, working class people in society and others, were not getting much benefit from the, the growth. It was going to a small minority. But when that happened, uh, a deep suspicion was planted in the hearts of enormous numbers of people. Not only of the trustworthiness of their rulers, um, maybe they'd never been that trusting <laughs> of them, but of their competence, of whether they knew what they were doing. In other words, it wasn't just a sort of conspiratorial grab of some kind. They really didn't know what they were doing. They really didn't understand the kind of forces that they had unleashed in the world. And so ten years later, we have the world as it is now. A world which, if you went back to 2007 or 2006, you'd hardly find a single person who would say that a party with um, profound uh, links with interwar fascism would be in power in Italy today and doing things that are recognisably continuous with the things that were done in the fact. You have a hardly single person. Why now then? Economic upheaval? Mass immigration? What are the reasons? Why are we here well, now? So, uh, what I don't think is explained by the, the appeal to the economic is which, uh, which identities get mobilised for what? Why is it religious identities in some places, racial identities in other places, um, caste identities and yet other places and there you have to understand the specifics of particular things so I would say yes the material conditions matter enormously they always matter but the form that the material forces as it were take is going to depend on the available um, conceptual resources on the, on the ideas around in society so the ideas are not um, they're not just acted upon they're also part of what's going on now, I, I absolutely agree that the right way to, um, to challenge the poisonous sides of, of, of um, say, ethnic nationalism isn't to have seminars on the history of nationalism. I agree with that. I'm pretty modest in my views about the capacity of, of uh, philosophers to change anything. I, our job, I think, is to help people understand the world and to, to give them tools for thinking about it. I don't think it's our job to tell people how to solve all these uh, problems. There are, there are, there are, and you know, if you think, for example, that economic stability is important, I would suggest you consult uh, economists, uh, sensible economists, about whether there are moves we ought to be making uh, in order to fend off these risks. Look, here's part of the problem. Globalization and migration displaced a lot of jobs. There are people who, when they were young, thought they had the prospect of a decent life uh, uh, in an industry 
that they were inducted into, familiar with, that fitted into their community, that, for example, had uh, trades unions, which also were part of their social life. They, they had a whole package. Work was Car lots and lots of in things. Detroit. Yes. Um, that's gone in many places. A responsible democratic elite would have spent time thinking about how to deal with the massive displacement caused by that. And by a responsible democratic elite, I do not mean politicians, though politicians need to be uh, responsible. I mean that there's a failure of intelligentsia, there's a failure of thinking people. We don't have uh, good answers to the question, how do you reshape economies in the face? Uh, there's a third force, which we haven't mentioned, which is also very important here, which is robotization. I've got the time, and I want to open up the floor to the question. Uh, questions to the floor. One last point that's a bit di disconnected to what we've just been talking about, but I think it's a, a good one to flag up and, and then we can come back to some of this, I hope, which is can we choose our identities? Why is it that someone like Caitlyn Jenner can announce that she's a trans woman but Rachel Dolezal is vilified for identifying as an African-American. I think most of you all remember that case. She was employed by the NAACP in Spokane, I think, and, but actually it turned out she had two white parents, and it was a, an enormous case. What, why do we allow some people to choose identities and not others? Well, uh, but that's, you, you, I, with great respect, I think you misdescribed the situation. Caitlyn Jenner didn't do the work. There have been trans activists working on this for a very long time, and she was able to benefit from that. Uh, and Rachel Dolezal is not part of a movement to allow voluntary racial identification. She cheated. She didn't do the negotiation I said you have to do in order to make the changes. She doesn't like the way the racial system places people like her, who are firmly on the side of racial justice. She's adopted uh, African-American children. She's uh, worked for the NAACP, which is one of the major civil rights organizations in the United States. All good. But if she wants to, to make a world in which you get to choose whether you're black or white, she has to make the case for that, and she, has to, she can't do it by sliding in, by cheating, by, by essentially uh, pretending to be something. She misled people. That's why people felt betrayed. They would have been perfectly happy to have her doing almost everything she did if she'd said what she actually, as it were, her actual current situation, which is, I'm a, I'm a white person who identifies with the struggle of black people. That would have been fine. So I think that she... The difference between the, those two fits precisely into the point that I was trying to make, which is that identities belong to all of us, and we can only sh reshape them. We, we, have, we don't have individual choices. The choice we have to make is to participate in a social process of remaking if identities are not fitting, if they don't work for us. We have to persuade other people of that. And I'm happy if, if Rachel Dozel and, and a group of people do the work, I'm happy to hear the arguments. I'm happy to think about that. I'm happy to, um, to go along, just as I'm happy to listen to trans people um, explaining to me why the gender system as it now is isn't, isn't suitable for them. John, is it as straightforward as that? Well, I, uh, I, think, that straightforward. <laughs> I think that that kind of negotiation is possible only in a small number of societies in the world. Because in many of the societies in the world, um, making the kind of self-definition, I'm a transgender person, or uh, many other types of racial or gender or others, can be extremely dangerous and fatal. And I think I'd like to use that fact to endorse what Anthony said earlier about the failure of intelligentsias. Um, not only philosophers, but um, social scientists as well. One of the best comments I ever heard on the situation now was made to be about 20 years ago, visiting an Arab country in the Middle East and speaking to the foreign minister of that country. And I asked him the following question. What do you think of Professor Samuel Huntington's theory of clashing civilizations? Are any of you aware of that? The theory that, I mean, I've criticized a lot, a lot in print uh, when you actually study it, you find that these flashing civilizations are actually a few American minorities. But anyway, put that aside. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but I asked him this question, and he made the following observation, which has remained in my mind um, more illuminating and true 
than any academic statement I've heard later. And he said, well, of course, it's complete nonsense from beginning to end. Dr. Samuel Huntington's theory is utter nonsense all the way through. And then he sat back and said, but of course, it probably very likely all come true. <laughs> and that, in fact, happened to some extent. We do have it in the world various incipient clashes, if not of civilizations, then of suddenly mobilized cultures or ethnicities and others. So the danger is that, I agree with Anthony on this, on this point fully, is that ideas that have been around and supposedly discredited are still in the culture, they're still in the language, they're still in thought, they're still in the way we live in some sense. Uh, and they can be mobilized by various um, uh, actors in society. Right, it's time to open the floor. We have set such a fantastic tapestry out for you. A gentleman there, and I'll go to and, and mic number one if there's someone near you. Thank you very much. Um, for a snowflake like me, the, the, uh, there's a terrible sense of foreboding. You used that word, we didn't. For a, t- a terrible sense of foreboding about the, um, the turbines of, uh, uh, of identity politics that are spinning at the moment. Uh, but my question is actually about the shrinking diversity of human culture um, over the last couple of hundred years. Um, given that incredible shrinkage, um, I think it was maybe you, Professor Gray, in the New Statesman, or perhaps it was Mr. Hereri, um, pointing out that um, even ISIS uh, didn't reject capitalism entirely um, and never burnt dollar bills um, and that they uh, also didn't reject Western medicine. Um, given that we are becoming increasingly a monoculture, what is the impact of that on identity? And are we, uh, is, a, is a one future, one hopeful future, the idea of a single human culture that uh, we're all part of? Okay. And there is a, a lady in the middle here. Yes, she's got a hand up now. One uh, factor into all of this that I'm kind of interested as to why you didn't touch on is fear and the need for sec- the desire for security. How do you think these have, both of these have played into, especially with the recent rise of the alt right or not, as you know people call it, the fear of other? And the need and you know intrinsic want for security for themselves and their family and you know their group that they've identified with. Lovely. And there was a gentleman. Yes, just there. Yeah. Um, a quick point, uh, John. I think that the um, scientists, uh, the writers, and the science fiction writers have predicted the futures that you've said, and uh, all credit to them. But um, my point is about the war of ideas and. Uh, If you look at the Black Power movement and various other movements in the States, all the people who wanted to change the system were killed by the system. And my point now is that if you look at someone like Steve Bannon, he has a war that he is engaging in and he is influencing uh, the alt-right and others in the world. But who is a counterforce? And will there be a counterforce? Because any of us with children hope that we're going to leave a better world. And I'm very worried that if we leave it to them to be the warriors, and we don't have a counter-warrior, they'll win. Anthony? Um, well, just on the culture thing, I mean, uh, cultures change all the time, and I think it's an exaggeration to say that we're approaching a monoculture. There are still thousands of languages in the world. Um, th- there are literatures in, in scores of them. You, uh, many, much of it untranslated. You've, you've probably never read anything translated from my father's language. Um, so I don't think that we're anywhere close to monoculture. And um, However, uh, I, I'm pretty confident that even if we were, even if everybody were speaking Chinese and uh, reading as in their classrooms the dream of the Red Chamber is their required reading because we were all reading Chinese literature and so on. Even if that were true, there'd be plenty of scope for identity division in the world. You don't need... People often think that cultural difference is the, is the cause of identity conflict. It's usually the other way around. A lot of cultural difference is the product of identity conflict. People actually develop differences in order to maintain boundaries between things. So I don't think... Um, I mean, good or bad, I don't think we're going to lose identities because uh, there's some cultural thinning. But I think it's really important not to exaggerate the extent of cultural thinning uh, the, that has gone on. And I think we're a long way away from anything you could plausibly call, uh, call a monoculture uh, in the world today. 
if the monoculture is capitalism, if that is the underlying culture, how much does that shove us all into one box? Well, capitalism is actually um, pretty well the only type of economic system in the world now. There, there aren't really alternatives anywhere, even in uh, North Korea or uh, other surviving socialist countries. But first of all, capitalism comes in various varieties. It also it interacts with the rest of the cultures that it enters into and so rapidly becomes different. There's no uh, kind of global collective agent called capitalism which sort of goes around doing things. I mean, this connects with the other question about Steve Bannon, a, a, a sort of a very toxic figure. I don't think he causes a great deal of the events in the world. It's like what David Cameron was supposed to have said. I think he was quoted as saying when he was asked about um, the referendum, uh, Brexit referendum going the wrong way, he said, oh, that was populism. Well, populism doesn't cause anything. <laughs> I mean, populism isn't something which goes around the world picking on things to do. Uh, populism is a description, not a very intelligent description, I think, actually, in many ways, of a variety of processes that are going on in the world anyway and which produce, produce uh, uh, results um, uh, like that. It is the case, though, I would put one qualification into uh, uh, what's been said so far, there are fewer languages in the world now than there were, and they're disappearing at a relatively rapid rate. I, can I come back to Steve Bannon? I'm, I'm going to keep mm. this moving along. John was just saying then, Steve Bannon doesn't necessarily make things happen, but isn't he a kind of auteur? Isn't he someone who's, <laughs> who's surveying the world and acting, uh, and consciously acting to make things happen? I'm sure that's happen. how he sees himself, but that, that could be sheer megalomania. <laughs> well, I mean, has he caused what has happened in Italy? Of course not. No. But I, I think, I mean, it's, it's one thing to deny that Steve Bannon, that we should, it's one thing not to endorse Steve Bannon's view grandiose view of himself. Yeah. It's another thing to say he's not doing anything. It's another thing to say he isn't having effects. Mm. And he is having effects. Mm. He is having effects. Uh, he had effects through, through that uh, online um, thing that he used to run. His name Bright I'm not going to... I'd rather not mention its name, um, just in case somebody might be tempted to go there and have a look. Um, you know, there are things like that. Those make a difference. And, and also, I think they make a difference, they make a different difference from the difference they used to make mm. because of the World Wide Web and because of, of the, yeah. the, the particularly toxic atmosphere that is easily generated there. Is there a counterforce? Is it important to have a counterforce in this world where there is this fear of the other? For whatever, I'm not entirely sure what his purposes are, but whatever his purposes are, um, he's using this negative thing. And we, uh, now, is there a counterforce? Yes, lots of us are against it, lots of us speak against it, lots of people in, in, the, in the arts, in, in the universities, and in politics uh, articulate an alternative picture. And I think that we should all do so, those of us who are on that side, more often and more boldly. But yes, there's lots of, and, and it works. You can. I don't mean um, you can bring down the Italian government tomorrow by making an argument, but you can, um, you can shape the world in a way that means that fewer Italians next time round, as it were, will do this, if, if we do the job that I think one of the... So here, I, I, I think that the deep disagreement between us is I have more confidence in the capacity of ideas and argument to do things, and John thinks the world is driven by, as it were, material forces. He's a kind of sort of old-fashioned Marxist, if I may say so. <laughs> uh, and, and How do you feel about being labelled <laughs> in that way in this conversation about identity? Well, you know, I've been a lifelong anti-Marxist and I'm still <laughs> opposed to um, his goals of communism, but he did understand one terribly important point, which is that capitalism is an extremely unruly beast. The great mistake of the liberal democratic left and the social democratic left of the center left was to think that they tamed capitalism. They hadn't. It was only in the rather unusual circumstances after the Second World War when much of the world was dominated by a single power, the United States, which set the global rules, which were bent and twisted and various things were done which shouldn't have been done and so on and they were imperialist, but set the global rules. So you had a period of in half of Europe, at least, and in much of the rest of the world, of rapid uh, uh, economic growth. Um, then you had the end of the Cold War, which brought huge elements of the world labor force um, into a global market. And that had very important 
positive effects as well as negative effects uh, in many parts of the world, to some extent in India and certainly in China as well. It led to an historic and unprecedentedly quick and large reduction of the worst types of poverty. So it wasn't all bad by any means. People who think globalization is all bad just haven't yes, yes. thought about it enough. John, I'm going to stop you there because otherwise the people on this side are going to be very unhappy. Yes. Right, so the middle section, and I promise you we will get to you. Uh, hi. Um, just one, one subject, really. Um, that a lot of what we're discussing uh, can be seen to be inherent in human nature, but one aspect that we seem to be consistently avoiding um, is, well, basically that the current conflicts correlate with access to the Internet and the population. And one thing I'm curious to understand your opinion on is how do you see the fact that we have an unprecedented level of communication that is concentrating and polarizing, and how do you see that affecting the current identity conflict that we're seeing? Okay, and there's one lady at the back just behind you there. Um, with the rise of artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, and multiple cyber identities, are you starting to include or think about how robots will influence your understanding of identities and categorization. Great. So, let me take the last um, uh, question uh, first. And that sort of illustrates a fact which an earlier speaker pointed out, which is that science fiction has often envisaged um, the futures we actually find ourselves in better than social science or philosophy. Um, because Blade Runner is an example, not of maybe androids, or, but of people who were specifically created um, for particular purposes uh, by a vast corporation who have intelligence, but who rebel against the fate they've been prescribed. Now, that has a couple of aspects which I'd like to stress. Unlike Yuval Harari, who, much of whose work I admire enormously, I see no reason why machines of that degree of complexity shouldn't acquire consciousness and self-consciousness. I don't think humans, I don't see any reason why to think that humans would be unique in this respect. So, depending on how fast technology changes, and our experience has been that in many areas it's much quicker than we thought it could be, I can easily imagine a situation in which, maybe, maybe I'll not be around then, but 20 or 30 years from now, uh, uh, we'd be sitting here and saying, what are we to make of these uh, sudden demands from Amazon robots? who replaced human beings who got fed up with that kind of repetitive work for employee rights, uh, uh, for discussion places, play centers, etc. What are we to make of them? After all, we created these, these, these devices and now they're demanding. I think that's completely feasible. So we'll have to expand it, expand this discussion. I think that's more likely than not in, uh, in the next few years. So that's my, I think it's an important point that you've raised. Never let me go, comes to mind. Yes, so go yes. yes. Side, yes. There was a question in the middle about... Um, about access to sort of the internet and the way in which better communications, right. rapid communications so, is polarising. So, it, it, yes, there's lots of polarisation on the web. On the other hand, uh, it is also making possible forms of identification that are extremely useful. Give you an example. If you are today a gay or lesbian Ugandan, you cannot tell your neighbours that. You cannot go out into the world uh, because, because you have a government and a society that is toxically homophobic. You can go on the web and find a community of people who can talk to you about what it's like to live in a world where lesbian and gay people are not abused. And that can be a source of solace to you and maybe even a source of guidance as to how to, uh, how to live in a, in, a, in a very difficult situation. Women in many societies in the world today who have access to the web have access to a world in which, if the place they're in is peculiarly patriarchal and sexist, they can nevertheless communicate with people who have a different way of thinking about gender. They can think about the transfer of, of, of new ways, the negotiation in their own society of new forms of more uh, uh, feminist uh, um, gender relations. Uh, and it's an enormous resource, enormous help 
in that, to have access to people outside of society whose main mode of control of subordinated people is precisely to deny them the chance to communicate with each other in a positive way. So, um, so this is me being on the, pointing, being out, pointing out that there's a good side to the way in which we're all being interconnected. Of course, it is also true that on the web nowadays there are these toxic, there's a toxic atmosphere. It's also a way of organizing uh, very dangerous and difficult things. Um, and, and that's a fact too. But I think we should recognise that there's, John, there's pros and cons. It's your cue to, to sort of pour some cold water all over this optimism. <laughs> no, I share some of that view. I mean, just as um, the internet enables toxic groups to spread their ideas, um, it also enable, enables isolated people who are persecuted or uh, marginalised in their own societies to link up. But the simplest... I think, effect of the internet, the simplest and the most universal, and the one which is maybe potentially the most um, important in supporting new tyrannies, is that the internet has already abolished privacy. I'm not convinced, I'm not an expert on these technologies, but I've talked to people who are, I'm not convinced it's a reversible fact. Uh, first of all, because it's next to impossible to live off the web completely. Not only in cities, but I mean, even if you haven't got a credit card, even if you, if you travel on the London tube, you'll be, for potentially perhaps quite good reasons, you'll be uh, photographed and imaged hundreds of times. That'll go into uh, face recognition technologies, which can go through billions of images in nanoseconds and so on. It's just a kind of fact. And you could say, well, and liberals say this, they say, well, we can, we can impose limits on what... Uh, our government can do, but it's not only a matter of our government, it's a matter of other governments, transnational corporations, criminal groups, sects of various kinds, cultists, mm. terrorist organizations, all of them basically are hacking. And so my point about this is, although I think, like most technologies, um, the internet has had many benign and even liberating effects, there are some effects that it has already had that are possibly um, irreversibly uh, involve a loss of some kind, in this case, of privacy. And of course, if there's no privacy, then one has a, a serious risk of a new kind of tyranny. Yes, at the back there, number four, there's a couple of people. Taking a slightly utopian aspect of these things, are there any, and considering this context and the power relations and all this baggage which is constructed around identity, have you guys come across any political formations or structures which you think are maybe more favourable to productive discussions around the, this question of negotiation of identity. Okay. Um, as a, a I'm going to stop the you there because so. we're really nearly out of time. There's a yes, lady there and a lady there. I was just wondering whether you can see an end to identity politics and what would have to do, come about to bring that about. Brilliant. Right. We've got two minutes. <laughs> There's your challenge. Um, so, is there a political structure which might be more favourable to this negotiation of uh, identity? Have these big identities that many of us would, would recognise, urban, rural, black, white, religious, secular, how has that played into political polarisation? And quite a good end thought. Can we imagine an end to identity politics? Is this just part and parcel of who we are as humans? John. I find it hard to imagine an end to identity politics, but as Anthony has said, it's not all toxic. It's part of what makes us not only what we are, but what we want to be. So we don't want to... I mean, I can imagine thinking, looking at the world as it is today, in which most of the forms of... Ident many forms of identity are toxic and much of our identity politics is toxic. I imagine someone saying... Um, damn it, I don't want an identity. I prefer to live without one. <laughs> I often feel that myself. Why do I have to have an identity? Why do I have to speak as someone? Why can't I just say what I think? And so I, I can't imagine that, but I can't imagine a world in which people don't organize themselves according to particular identities. It's never been like that and never will be like that. And I, but I also can't really imagine one in which it's free of conflict and free of danger either where this is the world we live in now. So the starting point is now. The first imperative uh, of all of us is to understand the present. If we don't understand the present, including aspects of it, which no one envisages as even possible, 
as recently as 10 years ago, then we're lost. And I think conversations like this, this help. Actually, I'm going to hurry you a bit because okay. I've crashed the pips uh, and I'm now uh, in the news uh, bulletin. Uh, I just want to make one point. Um, identity, one possible response to the bad identity politics is to have an ambition to go beyond identity. That's the wrong response. Mm. The right response is to improve identity, to negotiate better identities, to put them to better uses. The, 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 what we're complaining about isn't really identity politics, it's bad, it's toxic identity politics. But we should remember that there can be good, positive forms of identity politics. The forms of nationalism that created much of what's good in the modern world, as well as going along with warfare and all that other stuff, uh, were also, that, that was also identity. That was also identity that brought, uh, that brought us, uh, working class identities brought us some of the empowerment that produced the lifting up of the, uh, of the oppressed in, in, in much of the world and so on. So I think the right response is not to abandon identity, is to improve it. And on that thought, very optimistic thought, I want to thank Anthony Affia and John Gray. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.